This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hey, cat lovers. Welcome to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. I'm your host, Dr. Katherine Prim, and as many of you know, I am a veterinarian and cat lover, and today I have a really interesting guest. I have Dr. Sue Ettinger. She's Dr. Sue Cancer Vet, and when I posted that I was going to interview her on iHeartCat's Facebook page, I got tons of questions for her. So we're going to run her through the ringer and ask all of the things we ever wanted to know about feline cancer. But first, we're going to need to have a word from our sponsors. So we'll be right back. Hi, friends. This is Dr. Marty Becker, America's veterinarian. After a traumatic experience at the veterinary office, have you ever thought to yourself, there has to be a better way? When your veterinarian is fear-free certified, you'll find your pet's vet visit is safer, more comfortable, and actually enjoyable. Your dog will go from shaking in the lobby to pulling you into the exam room with a wagon tail, and your cat will be purring inside the carrier. To find a certified fear-free veterinarian near you, go to fearfreepets.com. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. back to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. And as I said, I have Dr. Sue Cancer Vet with me today. Welcome, Sue. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to spend today with you. Well, I am excited by the buzz that my question, what do people want to know about cancer in cats, all the response that that prompted. And so I'm ready to just dive into some of the things that they asked. Let's do it. Okay, this one is really important, and a lot of people ask this. What are some warning signs that cat owners could be watching for, for cancer in their beloved cats? Great question. And so the best thing that, you know, one of the most important things, and I know you will agree with this, is routine visits with our veterinarians is bringing our pets in for exams. And for me, when kitties get to middle age, which is a little bit subjective, but I'd say, you know, somewhere around six, seven, eight years old, we should not just be going for annual exams. We should start going in twice a year. Why? 
one of the things we want to do is wait. My own kitty, and it wasn't cancer, but it was due to kidney disease, lost a couple of pounds. And I'm a veterinarian. My husband's an internist, a veterinary internist. And it's really hard when we're with our pets every day to notice if they're losing weight. So weight loss is definitely a sign. Cancer is not the only thing that obviously causes it, but it's definitely one of the big ones. So I think it's really important to get our pets in, get their weight, a good physical exam, And then we want to obviously be watching their behavior. Are they hiding more? Are they not as social? Sometimes that's a tip that they're not feeling well. Vomiting can be a sign of some of the cancers. And then the other real reason that I love a good physical exam is you need your veterinarian opening up your cat's mouth and, you know, checking their toes and feeling their skin for lumps and bumps. So those are all the things that we can do. And then, I, you know, at some point, hopefully we'll be talking about my lumps and bumps program because it's really important for pet owners to be once a month, feel their cats from head to toe, head to tail, and, you know, be feeling for lumps and bumps. And if we find anything that's worrisome, you know, be our pet's advocate and get to the veterinarian and tell our veterinarians what our concerns are. Well, I think that it's a a good place to put in my little plug that cats try to hide disease from us. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, it can be subtle that you might not notice, but your veterinarian may see something that you didn't. So yay for you to put in the point of let's get those cats to the veterinarian. They really need to see us. I can't tell you how, I mean, I'm sure you see this as well. How many times do we have a cat come in and the owners will say, you know, this was a 15 pound cat a couple years ago and now they're nine pounds or, you know, they were a 12 pound cat and now they're 10 or eight pounds. And maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, like a lot, like eight pound cat is sort of average for some cats, but if they've lost four pounds and they were a 12 pound cat, that's a third of their weight, right? So that's a lot of weight for them to be losing before it prompts medical attention. And again, this comes from a place of no judgment because I let one of my own kitties lose a lot of weight because it's so hard when we're with our beloved pets day in and day out to sometimes notice subtle changes. And it was my mother-in-law who came over and said, looks really skinny, you know, and you're like, huh does he? You know, so again, I just think, you know, sometimes we need that objective point of view of our veterinarian. So get them there regularly for sure. I've had lots of clients say, well, the vets have been telling me for years that he was too heavy. So when he started to lose weight, I thought it was a good thing. And that's a great point. We don't want our cats too overweight and we want controlled weight loss. But I think sometimes we get fooled because we think the weight loss, but were you cutting back the food, right? You know, sometimes like, well, they just started to lose weight on their own. I was so happy. You're like, right from the sense of weight loss. But if you weren't doing a controlled weight loss plan with them, then maybe there's some underlying disease that's causing the weight loss for sure. So I think that weight loss is a huge one. And you mentioned lumps and bumps and checking your cat from head to toe. And I think that's a huge point. Make sure you have your hands on them. And if you find something, don't blow it off. Ask your vet. Absolutely. So the program that I developed came from missing a very large tumor in one of my nurse's dogs, but it applies to cats as well. And the take-home message for pet owners, it's called see something, do something, why wait, aspirate. So if we see something, a lump of bump on our cat that is the size of a pea, which is also the same size as an M&M or a Skittle, you know, especially with Halloween recently, we're all thinking about candy. But if we find these pea-sized masses on our cats that have been there for a month, 
we see something, we need to do something, we need to go to our veterinarian. And Dr. Cat, you can't look at a mass, I can't look at a mass and know what it is. We have to collect some cells with it and that's the do something. So we stick a needle in, pretty non-invasive, we collect some cells and then we can really start to know, is this a benign process? Is this a malignant cancer? And the point of the small size is, you know, if it's a malignant cancer, we can get it removed. Hopefully the cat will not need anything, no chemo, no additional surgeries because we'll know what it is and make that first surgery the only surgery. So it's really important that we're on top of these because think about the cat too. They're so small. Unfortunately, like if you put, you know, a mass the size of a golf ball on a cat's neck or a cat's face, we're not going to be able to remove it surgically. But if it's much smaller, we have a better chance of curing that cat with surgery. So it's really, really important, especially in cats. Think of their legs. Their legs are so little. There's just not a lot of tissue around a lump or bump to remove it. So it's so important in cats especially. And that was one of the reasons we went with a very small size for the recommendation is because of cats, you know, and they're just, they're not big creatures. So we have to really find these lumps or bumps when they're small. So watch for things like weight loss, subtle changes in behavior, hiding, any little thing that's not typical for your cat and include your veterinarian and check with a schedule your veterinarian from the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail and seek help if you find something. Great, yeah. great advice. And, and, the, and the big one is also, you know, for especially for cats, you know, they have a really, one of the toughest tumors is this one in the mouth called squamous cell carcinoma. And the problem with that one is like, lumps and bumps, we often find them when they're too big. And so again, your cat needs to have a good oral exam when they're there, open up their mouth, look under the tongue and things like that. So, and a lot of that comes from getting cats used to seeing a vet when they're younger, because cats don't want to open up their mouth for us. You know, they're not going to open up their mouth voluntarily and stick out their tongue. So you have to make sure that your cat is comfortable to being handled, you know, and comfortable going to a veterinarian. And I know you and I believe in the fear-free principle and the fear-free practices. So we want to make going to the vet as stress-free as possible, but we do have to get our pets used to being, you know, at the veterinarian so they can get those good exams from a preventative point of view. Yay. I'm glad you mentioned fear-free. <laughs> that is a thing for me. And if we can make cats comfortable with us looking at them and not just see them when they're so sick that it's a terrible experience, that makes a huge difference in how long we have our cats. Exactly. Okay, so this was kind of an interesting question, and I've wondered myself. A viewer named Marilyn said, why does it seem like we see more cancer in cats now than we have in the past 50 years? What is your opinion on that? That is such a hard thing to really know for sure. And, you know, a lot of that, is there more coverage? Are we more aware? Is, you know, the reason it's a hard question to really answer is we don't know the real incidence of cancer in dogs and cats. And there's a couple of problems. One, we don't have a census. We don't know how many, so we don't have the denominator, right? The bottom part of that number. We don't know how many dogs and cats are in the population. So to really report that well, we would need a census like they do in people. The other thing is we would need to be reporting cancer on a regular basis and then tracking that over time. So you can go to like the CDC website and see really great statistics for lung cancer in people, colon cancer, and the different cancers. And then they break it down by different groups of people and things like that. So in dogs, Dogs and cats, we don't have that. So we don't necessarily can't say, well, compared to 10 years or 20 years ago, we're seeing more cancer. 
I see a lot of cancer, but that's not a very scientific, you know, assessment of it. But it does feel like we're possibly seeing more. We do know that some things have changed. For example, in cats with lymphoma, we have decreased the feline leukemia-associated lymphoma, but we're seeing more gastrointestinal lymphoma. And there's been a lot of theories, you know, as some of the diets have changed to help prevent urinary diseases, could that contribute to it? I'm not blaming diet exclusively, but again, we definitely have seen some trends in cancer in cats, but it's really hard. I wish I could say for sure. I would love to say, no, it's not true or say, yes, we have the evidence. It is true, but we don't really have enough facts to be able to say what's going on. Well, I agree. It does seem like we see more, but there are so many factors. I see a ton. Obviously, you see a ton, but maybe I'm just seeing more pets. Maybe I'm seeing more pet owners who are aware and seek my help. I don't know, but I think that's an excellent question. And I think we're also, you know, with media and social media, we're more aware, right? And if you're a conscientious pet owner, you're probably reading more about it and you're seeing more articles about it. And so I think that also adds to the perception, whether true or false, that there's more cancer. Because, you know, if you're a pet owner, and you worry about it, you start reading about it, like me, you might get more worried about it. So it's hard. I agree. Well, so you mentioned something that I have also been very interested in, the role of diet and nutrition, both in preventive or protective roles, as well as in the treatment of cancer. And several people asked me questions about that. Can you give us some insights into that? We probably need to break it up, right? So I don't think that people, people are always looking for one simple cause to blame on cancer in dogs and cats. And I don't think I'm going to could say that the pet food industry is causing cancer. I'm not, I'm not going to say that at all. And I don't think that is true. What I do know and what we do know in people that two of the lifestyle things that contribute to cancer, I'm not talking about genetics or molecular causes or chemicals or things like that, but two of the lifestyle things in people are a diet low in fruits and vegetables and obesity. And there's some at least some good studies in dogs that show that lean dogs, they looked at Labradors, live two years longer. So I think keeping, you know, a thing that we can also do is make sure our pets don't get overweight. In dogs, and again, I'm sorry I keep saying in dogs, but sometimes there's just more studies about it. But, you know, we know that sometimes adding, if you can get your cat <laughs> to eat vegetables, but in dogs, dogs that got more vegetables in their diet had lower instances of bladder cancer and some other cancers. So I think in that sense, maybe the quality of the food. We know that cats are carnivores, so they need, you know, they need a meat diet. I'm not saying we should start making them vegetarians, but some of the other diets, could they benefit from having some of the plant compounds in them? That, you know, is yet to be seen. So does that start to answer the question for you? I think so. So you're thinking of the quality of the food, like the digestibility and that kind of thing are important because I think maybe so. Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, the quality of the meats, where are the meats coming from, you know, a lower quality meat that maybe has been exposed to antibiotics and other things like that maybe isn't going to be as good as some of the other meats. And then there are, you know, unfortunately, sometimes 
grains, and I'm not saying every animal, dog or cat, needs to be on a grain-free diet, but I like to look at the source of where the grains are coming because grains are cheap, so they often put them in some of the foods. Are they genetically modified, right? And so those are the things that I like to think about when I look at the, the food, like the quality of it, where are the ingredients coming, and things like that. I, and then again, not letting them eat too much because I do worry about obesity and that link to cancer as well. I did mention with gastrointestinal, so GI tract lymphoma in cats, you know, because that's one of the most common cancers that we see in cats. But there has been this trend where we've been seeing more gastrointestinal lymphoma. And we do know that inflammation and chronic inflammation, both in dogs, cats, and people can contribute to cancer. So, you know, maybe a diet that's going to be less inflammatory for them or really picking up on an IBD in cats, which is not uncommon either early and getting them on an appropriate diet will help as well. That is excellent advice. Yes, I see that a little bit more than I used to, I think. I I don't have any science or numbers, but it seems like I'm seeing that a lot. So I had some other questions that are somewhat controversial and sort of interesting. And even my friends that are veterinarians wanted me to ask your opinion on this about the safety of vaccines for cats. Yeah. So the reason, just so we're all on the same page that we're asking this is, gosh, I can't even remember when we first started noticing what was originally called vaccine-associated sarcomas, right? So is that where we're going with this, you think, with this question? Yeah, I want to kind of start there, yes. Yeah. So we noticed, and the most common vaccines that cats typically get are rabies and feline leukemia. So that's where they first, with vaccines, we first started to notice this association of tumors, connective tissue tumors called sarcomas. And they're pretty locally aggressive tumors, so they're very invasive. Again, going back to the see something, do something principle, if you find that lump or bump that's on your cat, you know, we need to remove them early because these tumors have like, I always say, of like roots of a tree projection growing from the primary mass. So you really have to do quite a big cat surgery to remove these tumors. What we've learned over the years, and they've been really reclassified as injection site sarcomas, is that in some cats, they have an overzealous, going back to inflammation, inflammatory response to any injection. So you can see it from a steroid injection. You could see it potentially in some cats from an antibiotic injection. There was that flea medication on the market a bunch of years ago, maybe seven years ago for cats. The idea was that you were only giving it once every six months and some cats got it, got this sarcoma from that as well. So it seemed the incidence is reported to be one in 10,000. So not very common until it's your own cat, then it seems like the incidence is at 100%. Some studies show a little bit higher up to one in 1,000. So not every kitty is getting it. So I think an important question that we should ask as pet owners when you're with your cat and your veterinarian is what vaccines do I really need for my cat? How often, where on my cat's body am I giving them? We know not to, right, not to be giving them in between the shoulder blade. That was very common 20 years ago, but then they would get these tumors and it would be really hard to find them and remove them successfully. So now the recommendation is on the legs, right? And does your cat need every vaccine that often is really the question. Are they an indoor-outdoor cat? You know, if they're going outdoors, they are more at risk for feline leukemia virus from fighting with other kitties. But if they're an indoor only cat, 
maybe they don't need that vaccine. So I think the discussion really should be where are we giving the vaccines? How often are we giving them? And are we thinking about each kitty as an individual and not just a little checklist of vaccines that they should be getting? I think that it is the relationship with a veterinarian. And this is what I tell my clients. Mm -hmm. Communicate with your veterinarian. Tell them what you need. Tell them what your concerns are. And if you have that relationship, I know I choose really carefully what each of my patients get based on their needs. And so exactly. I, I, I do the research on everything I'm giving them and I really care about them because I because I know them and they're my they're my patients. So I think that that is important, a relationship and not just a, a kind of a drive by vaccination clinic kind of thing. Exactly. And, you know, we're still learning a lot about these tumors and there's a lot of research. I went to a good talk at one of the conferences in Denver last year and we're still really understanding. I mean, one of the early things that we knew about the rabies vaccine, it wasn't the vaccine itself. It was something within that kind of kept the vaccine sterile and, and we thought safe, the aluminum adjuvant. And so they've reformulated the vaccines for sure. And, you know, so now we're not using this non-adjuvant vaccine that doesn't have the aluminum in it. But we still see that some of these tumors, even without the aluminum. So that wasn't like the only thing that needs to be adjusted. So again, I think, like you said, having a really good conversation with your veterinarian when they say it's vaccine time, be like, hey, can we talk about what vaccines my kitty may need based on their risk factors for sure? Well, and I, I think that not deciding on your own based on what you have read on the internet that your <laughs> yeah. cat needs or doesn't need. I think that's huge. Let your veterinarian help you because I did have a little kitten that I adopted that died from panleukopenia. And so these diseases are still out there. Yes, absolutely. And my husband, I mentioned earlier, is a veterinarian and he got bit by a cat at work one day. And then the cat was really sick when he got bit, you know, when my husband got bit and the cat was not up to date on his rabies vaccine. And then the cat passed away and the cat was tested for rabies and was positive. And my husband had to go through pretty, you know, expensive treatment. And I remember we were getting ready to leave for a conference and, you know, the board of health called and was like, he's like, no, I'm leaving tomorrow morning. They're like, not until you get started for treatment for rabies. I mean, rabies is fatal in people when you get it. So it's not something. So we need to, you know, we need to protect our pets and and we need to protect the people that live with our pets, which is our, us as pet owners and our care providers, because I can tell you that was a very personal, you know, experience with it. And it frustrates me that cat was not an indoor only cat. That cat should have been up to date on his rabies vaccine. But that's the real reason that we need to be on top of that. Well, and, and the cat died and yeah. your husband could have died. Yeah. So that's not really a joke. That's not a small thing. No, that's why I feel, so I feel very strongly that we need to vaccinate them appropriately, but also how often we're doing it with what vaccines we're giving them. And again, location on our kitties, we're not doing them in between shoulder blades anymore. We're doing them down on the legs. So the idea with that is if they have to have a big surgery, it's going to be in an area where we have a better chance of controlling the cancer. Well, and that brings me to the next question that a lot of people actually asked. I hadn't, I was surprised. What about the chemicals that we use to treat for things like fleas? Now, you mentioned the injectable flea product, and I remember that one, and that was more the injection site thing. But what about these other flea medications? Are you seeing anything with those? I don't think we know, and I don't think. I've never read about a link between the flea medications, and I'm also always trying to balance 
you know, like if you, have you ever had fleas on one of your pets? Yes, it wasn't pleasant. No, it's not pleasant. The whole house needs to be treated. You know, you don't just treat the cat. You have to like clean the bedding and the carpet. I mean, it's fleas are miserable. So (laughs) I always think about that. Like, what is the risk of my cat getting fleas and bringing fleas into our house or my dog, you know, because we have multiple pet household. So I'm not aware of any association with flea products and cancer. But I don't think we know, like, you know, I think about all the chemicals that we are as people are exposed to. And I remember when I first had my kids and you, you know, you start to shift into this whole, should I be using natural? Will it make a difference? Will it be effective? And things like that. So I don't think we know. I really, I wish we had more info on that. Do you have a feeling? Well, I did have the fleas and of course, new fleas hatch out every two weeks. I adopted an an abuse case and brought her into my home and, and I was a little too slow on her flea care and they got into my couch and all and they were biting me. So I think the answer is balance. I try to be yep. smart and read the labels and do the research before I put anything in or on my pets, but they don't need fleas. So it's it's a balance thing. Yeah, I feel the same way with other, yeah, like, you know, people worry like about heartworm preventatives and flea and ticks. And then I'm in the Northeast and the ticks are horrible and it's been a bad season for them. And, uh, you know, I have patients that come in, we pull three, four ticks off and things like that. So for those medications, I'm looking at the balance because, you know, some of the tick-borne diseases are pretty dangerous as well. So again, I usually look at the risk and say it's probably worth treating our pets for these, you know, as a preventative. I agree. Well, I'm in the mountains, so there are lots of, and humidity. So we have fleas and ticks. I even found a tick on one of my feline patients in January at the beginning of the year. So they're here. We recommend treating for them. But like I said, I I make sure what I carry in my hospital, I've kind of vetted before I send it out the door. So mm-hmm. what about microchips? Someone asked about microchips and cancer risk. You know, that's a great question. And, you know, the part of me that knows about how cats, that there's something in some cats that have this overzealous inflammatory reaction and that makes injection locations potentially cancers. I have never heard of microchips causing it. You know, I've never heard of it. I've never read an article about it. That doesn't mean that there isn't some obscure journal article somewhere in the universe that shows it, but I I think that's a low risk based on what I know. I think I heard some study about mice and microchips and they said there was some kind of link and then they found out that the mice used in that study had been used in a cancer study previously or something. Do you remember right. all of that? I don't remember that as well, but I think the fact that we're struggling to say that we even know anything makes me feel that, again, we're talking about balance, right? Just like you said. So, you know, the probably the benefit of, if you live in New York City, where I did my residency and you have an indoor-only cat, you probably don't need to microchip your cat. But if you have an indoor-outdoor cat who spends a lot of time outdoors and there's a possibility that he's going to get lost and, you know, his collar never stays on, kind of thing, then maybe you should microchip. Again, I think looking at the pluses and the minuses, but again, I don't think they're rampantly causing cancer in our kitties. 
Okay, so now I've got some interesting other questions. And this one I want to talk about because I think it sounds kind of fun to explore. Uh (laughs) I know, get ready, right? I'm ready, Um, I'm ready. Someone commented that they believe that scientists are now finding cannabis to be helpful and possibly curative for cancer and wants to know what you think about this. So timely question in the sense that I was just at the annual Vet Cancer Society meeting, which is a conference that, as you know, I speak a lot at many other conferences, but this is the one where I go and I'm a student and I'm there with my notebook. And we had a great lecture before the conference started. It was one of these pre-conference talks from a human pediatric oncologist talking because we were in Portland where cannabis, you know, marijuana is legal. So especially for medical use. So we had a great talk about that and the benefits, not really as a treatment for cancer, but what benefits could it have in terms of use in our cancer patients? And so, you know, people think about it stimulating appetite, which is one use. And then the other uses were for pain and They use that in people, especially in children who have pain from their cancers and they're worried about them getting potentially addicted to some of the other pain medications or finding that they can use cannabis to help with that as a pain medication and lower or get them off some of the other pain medications. And then also potentially for anxiety, which I think might be a good use for cats, you know, even the anxiety of coming into the vet office. In terms of whether or not we can use it to cure cancer, I think that's too early to say. But I have used it in a couple of cats because there's not a lot of great options for cats that aren't eating. So I've tried to use it in some cases where I was dealing with both pain and poor appetite. And so I've used it in a handful of cases then. But I think we're, you know, we're really on the cusp of really starting to understand how and when to use it in, in cats and dogs. But it's exciting that we have more options. Well, and it's kind of fun to talk about. I think that if it was preventive, I knew a lot of people in college that will never get cancer. So, um, (laughs) you know, I don't really believe that it's particularly preventive, but I think it probably does have some uses and I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it too. You know, and one of the things that we're not talking about is we're not talking about smoking pot with our cats in the room by any stretch of the imagination, but there are cannabis oils in people, there are edibles as well. One thing to point about, and this is probably something that we'll see more in dogs than cats because cats are not as indiscriminate eaters as dogs, but in people, pot toxicity, you know, marijuana toxicity is not going to happen because they would have to eat just or smoke or, you know, such a ridiculous amount of marijuana for toxicity. But toxicity in at least dogs is definitely an issue um, and they can definitely have severe side effects from that. So, and that's usually a dog that gets into an edible product. Like I said, I'm not sure that cats would be so silly as to eat you know, these products like dogs. But again, you know, I think there's a lot to think about with that. But I I do think it's really good to have new options, especially for pain. And as you know, figuring out if cats are painful is not easy either. But I think, like I said, it's really exciting to have some new options for these. 
I know. I'm I'm happy that science always finds things to explore. It's it's exciting to me. Well, several people asked, and I know this is a huge, broad, and varied answer, but they wanted to know about cancer treatments. And I know that you absolutely can offer some hope and some advice for some of the common treatments for cats and the common cancers in cats and, and how cats respond to these medications and side effects and that kind of stuff. Can we talk about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a this is a great question and you know, I think it's the first thing that we should be talking about, you know, in the sense that a lot of people in the beginning when you say that you're going to be talking to me about cancer, they say, "Oh, I don't want to listen to that, right? It's going to be depressing." And I, what I want people to really know is that we should be hopeful and not that we want our pets to have cancer, but just know that treatment is very well tolerated. There's a ton of different treatment options for cats out there, and early detection is super important. So we want to find these cancers earlier when they're treatable. But with that said, you know, before I talk about the different treatments, another thing is to remember that breast cancer in cats is different than lymphoma, which is different than squamous cell carcinoma in the mouth of cats. And each disease, each cancer should really be thought of as a, a different disease because there are some that are way more treatable than others and they can require very different treatments. But in general, the three ways that we typically treat cancer in dogs, cats, and people is surgery, radiation, and chemo. So surgery is to cut hopefully the primary cancer out for sure, the radiation in some cases. But I'd like to talk about chemo the most because I think that's the one that scares people the most. And when I'm with a client in the room with a cat and I say, who do you think is going to tolerate chemo the best, a dog, a person, or a cat? Oh, you ask clients that? I ask clients. And you, you're you asking me. I and think, I'm asking I think that the cat would, but I'm, I know a little, but you know bit. the answer, but, <laughs> but you know, people like it can't be cats, right? They're small, they're fragile. How is my cat going to handle chemo? Well, and cats handle chemo better than dogs and dogs and cats handle chemo better than people. So that's like the first myth and misconception that we have to get over in our minds is that pets can tolerate chemo and that cats do way better than dogs. So they don't lose their hair coat, which is great. They can lose their whiskers, but they'll be fine without them and they'll grow back. They don't get severely low white blood cell counts like people do, so they're not at risk for crazy infections. They can get some mild vomiting or diarrhea or loss of appetite for a couple of days after their chemo treatment. But again, many of the times they don't have any side effects or it's just going to be mild for a few days. And it's estimated that 80% have no side effects after chemo. So that's pretty remarkable when you look at it. So, you know, the other thing I tell my cat owners when I'm in the room with them is let me give a dose or two of chemo and see how they do. And then they'll be like, are you sure you gave chemo last week? Because my cat's pretty much unchanged. So again, the point is they really do well during treatment. And that just gives me a lot of comfort when I'm standing in the room with these very terrified, very scared pet owners that their cat can do okay with treatment. The other thing that people often say, well, is it going to be expensive? It depends on the cancer and what we're treating. But, you know, chemo is over the course of the chemo, which could be over six months, you could spend a couple of thousand dollars depending on what part of the country you're in. But what I like to do with pet owners is when they come in, I always tell the veterinarian, it is a not, no obligation 
consultation. You're just paying for that first appointment. And we can go through your cat's cancer. We can discuss the different treatment options. I usually can present different ranges of options. We can say, okay, well, this is the best protocol, but it's more expensive because it requires more visits. This is a plan B protocol that maybe isn't as good statistically, but can still give us pretty good results. Or we can go into supportive. What can we do to support them nutritionally and pain medications and appetites and things like that? So again, you know, people get scared when they come to talk about cancer that it's going to be crazy expensive, but hopefully we can provide a range of options for that family and find something that fits their budget and their time schedule. Well, and the quality of life, which is really the most important thing, is knowing that your cat's not in pain and knowing that you're addressing in some way is the best part. And I have to tell you, sometimes owners say, oh, I'm so scared about treating, which is totally reasonable. And they go, and I don't want them to you know, suffer. Again, totally reasonable. But a lot of the times, their cancer is making them feel unwell and not treating them is going to make them feel unwell. So again, even if we're not going to go full gung-ho chemo or surgery, getting some supportive medications on there to make sure they're staying adequately hydrated and they're getting the nutrition that they need and that do they need pain medications? Because we know figuring out if our cats are painful can be really, really hard. So a lot of times we have to say, well, I know this tumor is invading into the leg and there's some bone there. And I think that we just, and they're like, I don't think he's painful, but they're limping and you, you need to get them on some pain medications. But sometimes it's really hard as a pet owner to know that. So again, having that good conversation with your, your veterinarian is going to be really helpful, I think. It goes back to what you said. If you see something, do something. You've yeah. got to do something. Knowledge is power. And so even if you don't do everything, you've got to do something. Exactly. I mean, I 100% agree that, you know, you're right. I love it. The see something, do something phrase can apply not just to lumps and bumps, but just anything. And a lot of the times, you know, I always tell my pet owners, it's parents' intuition, right? So, you know, a lot of the times they're like, I'm not sure what was wrong this week, but something was different. And I feel silly calling you about it, but I'm like, nope, nope. You know, you know, my pediatrician told me the same thing with my first son. Trust your intuition. Sometimes you're going to be wrong and that's okay. Okay. But, you know, if something is bothering you or you think bothering your pet, let us know because that's the only way that we can help you. I tell people I'd rather you call me every day and me be able to tell you that nothing is wrong than you skip a call one day when something is. Exactly. I agree. Well, this was really fun and I may have to have you come back so that we can talk about smoking pot and all this stuff. Are we, we done already? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we just started. I know it. And that's why I say we could do a whole a whole additional show. But I certainly want to thank you for coming today. It was really, really fun. And I want you to tell my listeners how they can find out more about you and about what you do. Oh, thank you. It's really easy. The two sort of, you can go to my website, which is drsuecancervet.com. And that really has links to all the things that I'm doing. But I'm on Facebook. We have a great community of very supportive pet owners and veterinarians on there. And I share stories about my different patients and what we're going through and what we're doing in the clinic. And then the other fun place that you can kind of see, because people always say like, what goes on behind when my pet is back there? So I'm now doing some video blogs or vlogs, and you can get those on my YouTube channel, uh, which is also Dr. Dr. Sue Kanzervet. And if you would love to subscribe to my YouTube channel, I would be ever so grateful. 
Well, and for all of my listeners that already follow my Facebook page and all of my links and things, you can look in my likes because I already like Dr. Sue. So you can find her that way easily. And so I want to thank everyone for listening today. I also want to thank our producer, Mark Winter, for the amazing work that he does for Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. And I want everyone out there to have a perfect day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.